it's so rare as screenwriters that we actually get to hear our work performed. And it takes so many years uh, for our projects to move from conception through to production that um, oftentimes it's, it's hard to know where we really are in the process. It's hard to know how things are progressing. And even if you weren't uh, fortunate enough to win the table read, one of the beautiful things about table reads is that it's something that you can give to yourself. No matter where you live in the world, no matter what you do, there are actors who would be delighted to come read for you. And if you buy them a beer and give them some food, they are delighted. And they will give you incredible insights into your script. Um, and as part of the prizes that, that uh, Jacob Kruger Studio provides for Table Read, um, we always try to do a teleconference like this. Um, and, and I felt like this was a really valuable topic. I was thinking, what would I want if, if I had been part of a contest and maybe I had gotten what I wanted or maybe I had not uh, gotten the response I expected for my script? And I was thinking, what would I want as a screenwriter? And one of the things that I would really want to know is, who are these people who are reading our scripts? What do these people really want? What are they looking for? What are the things that drive these people crazy? Um, and if your script is not having the success that you desire, if you're not making it to the final round, if you're, if you're placing but not winning, or if you're not getting to the next round, there are usually very specific things that you can identify in your script that are part of the problem. And so I wanted to talk about five things today that you can really look at um, as you're putting the script together to help you get inside the mind of a reader. And the first thing to understand is that your, read, your script is not being read by a screenwriting professional. Your script is not getting read by someone who's gone to grad school for a film. Now, that's not always true. It might be that you got really lucky and that you have a brilliant reader uh, who has a tremendous amount of experience, but most coverage readers are not, uh, are not film professionals, they're interns. They're people who are at the very beginning of their career who are reading scripts for $50 a script to try to scrape by. If you are submitting to contests, you need to know that the readers that are reading your script are even less professional because most, most contests can't afford to pay somebody $50 for each script um, that gets submitted. Um, so oftentimes your scripts are being read by interns. And this is not because contests are evil. This is because contests need to provide a, a reasonable entry fee and they need to provide prizes, and they need to read a lot of scripts. And a lot of the scripts they read are not really gonna have a shot. A lot of the scripts they read are going to be very, very, very far from a professional quality script. And so uh, the same thing is true in the professional world. Um, you would think that writers with powerful agents, you know, must be great writers turning out great scripts, but oftentimes that is not actually the case. What a lot of professional writers are doing are, is throwing stuff up against, against the wall to see if it sticks. 
They're writing their scripts in 12 weeks, blowing them out, giving them to their agent. Their agent farms it out. If anyone expressed interest, then they start doing rewrites. And so as a producer, you find yourself in this kind of uncomfortable position, which is a lot of the scripts that you're being sent are not very good scripts. And a lot of the agents who are sending them are not very good agents. Um, so oftentimes you're getting scripts that you would never produce in a thousand years, even if they were great. You're a zombie movie producer and somebody's sending you a romantic comedy. Um, I learned this lesson way back in the day when I was a producer. And I'll never forget, I was a young producer and there was this very, very powerful agent at Endeavor who had a long relationship with our company. And we had an open writing assignment. Uh, and we were looking for, uh, for a writer. And he sent me 15 different writers, each with two writing samples. So that's 30 scripts from one agent. And I read five of them. And none of the five had any relationship to the, 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 the position we were trying to fill. They were not in any way related that, you know, we were, it was a fantasy piece. You know, he was sending us thrillers. He was sending us action movies. He was sending us stuff that had, had absolutely nothing in common with the assignment we we're trying to film. And me being a young, relatively honest producer, uh, called him up and I said, he said, well, what do you think? Who, who do you want? And I said, honestly, I don't want any of them. And he said, what do you mean? I sent you 15 writers. You don't want any of them? And I said, yeah, I read five of your scripts, five out of 30. None of them were related in any way, so I stopped reading. Well, the next day I get called into my boss's office. And my boss basically says, do you know who that was? Do you know what you just did? And I got in very deep trouble. And I learned something. And I learned the same lesson that every producer learns. I learned to use coverage readers. So what I would do is instead of reading those five scripts myself, I would send all 30 of them out for coverage. Um, now, I didn't trust my coverage readers. And I didn't trust my coverage reader for a very specific reason. I didn't trust my coverage reader because I did some math. And I said to myself, well, how long would it take me to read a script carefully, to write a good logline, a strong summary, and a solid commentary about that script? And I realized that if these coverage readers were really doing their jobs, they would be making pennies per hour. And so what I realized was that most of these coverage readers were probably racing through the writing of the coverage. They had to race through it. They couldn't do it slowly and carefully because if they did it slowly and carefully, they wouldn't make a dollar. That at 50 bucks a script, think about how many scripts and how many pieces of coverage you need to read every day. So I didn't trust my coverage readers. I would never go to a coverage reader or notes or for how to fix a script. In fact, I didn't even trust their commentary if they said it was good or bad. I would always flip through a couple pages. But by sending it out to coverage, I could very quickly skim and see the ones that just didn't have a shot. To see the ones that were completely bad, that had no shot of being right for me. And then when I had to talk to the agent, instead of saying I didn't read it, 
I could say, I could look at the commentary and say, well, it started really strong, but the, you know, we lost track of the main character about a third of the way through. And then that agent could call his client. And instead of saying to his client, well, I couldn't get him to read it, the covered the, the agent could say, well, you know, they really liked the beginning, but, you know, they kind of lost track of the character. Now, the truth of the matter is that may have been true or may not have been true. Because the truth is most covered readers aren't reading your full script. They're skimming your script. Um, but it gave enough of a reason that I could preserve the relationship with the agent. Um, and the relationships are very important in Hollywood. So it's important to understand what coverage is. Coverage is not development notes. Even though in the com consumer world, coverage is sold as if it were development notes. No producer who's worth his salt, no producer who knows what she's doing, would ever go to a $50 a script coverage reader for development notes. Um, a person goes to coverage for a reason to pass, a reason to say no, without damaging a relationship. If you think the script is a good script, if you think the script is worth reading, you don't trust the coverage reader. What you do is you sit down and you read the script. But even then, it's important for you to know that the person reading your script, I happened to be a writer. But oftentimes, the person reading your script is not a writer. Oftentimes, the person who's reading your script, again, is not a graduate of film school. Oftentimes, the person who's reading your script is a producer. And a producer is another way of saying a salesperson. Um, now, there are producers who are brilliant at developing. But there are very few of them. There are producers who are great at reading scripts, but the truth is most producers don't spend a lot of time reading. Most producers don't like reading. And that means that there are very specific things that you can do in your script that can either cause you to lose the coverage reader or lose the producer, or that can help you draw the coverage reader or draw the producer in. And if you can learn to understand how a coverage reader or how a producer thinks when they are reading a script, if you can learn to understand where they're coming from and what their experience is, it can totally change your experience and your success in festivals, in contests, and in your career. So here's the first thing you need to know. This is the first step to screenwriting success. Do not show up to your job interview and realize you're not wearing pants. So often, we are in such a rush to get our scripts out into the world that we end up taking our scripts out before they are ready. And the truth is, to get someone to read your script is a tremendous, inve tremendous investment. Um, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. And quite frankly, it takes a lot of luck. You got to get a little lucky for a producer to actually read your script or to even get it to a point where a producer sends it out for coverage. It's going to take a lot of your time and a lot of your energy. And you, 
when your script first lands on that person's desk, it's like showing up at a job interview. So the number one thing that you need to keep in mind is you don't want to show up at your job interview and realize you forgot to put your pants on. You don't want to do all that work to open the door only to show up with a script that isn't really ready for prime time. You want to do all that work to open the door and show up with a script that's totally ready for prime time. You want to show up with a script that is better than what they're used to seeing from professional writers. You want to show up with a script that knocks their socks off. Because you need to knock their socks off. Because you are an unknown writer. And there are a lot of writers with whom they already have relationships. There are a lot of writers with whom they already have relationships with their agents. There are writers with whom they've already got production deals. There are writers with whom they've done projects in the past and had good experiences. And that means if they're going to take a chance on you, your writing can't just be as strong as the writing that they could get from somebody else. It has to be stronger. So that means putting the work in. The good news for you is that most professional writers are turning around scripts in 12 weeks. That is really, really fast. And that means that professional writers usually do not have the time to put that little extra bit of love into their scripts. They don't have the time to make their scripts as good as they can be. As a new writer, as an emerging writer, you have the time to write the script that truly blows everybody away. So rule number one, don't show up at your interview without your pants on. Don't spend thousands of dollars submitting your script to festivals if it's not really ready to go. Because if you do so, you're not going to win the festival. You're not going to place in the festival and you're just going to feel bad about yourself. Send your script out, spend that money, spend that time when you know it's ready. Okay. The next thing you need to understand, so the second step to screenwriting success, is to understand that most scripts are bad. Most scripts are terrible. And that means when your reader starts reading your script, they are entering the room with the expectation that what they read is going to be bad. Um, I recently had a coverage reader take my Write Your Screenplay class here in New York City. Um, and I looked at him and I said, so how many scripts have you read? And he said, about a thousand. And I said, how many of those scripts were actually good? And he said, one. Just think about those numbers. And he wasn't reading scripts by amateur writers or beginner writers like you. He was reading scripts by professional writers. Now, just think about how depressing that is if you are a coverage reader. For a coverage reader, that is terrible news. But for you as a screenwriter, that is great news. That means that if you as a screenwriter learn to do this right, you actually can compete. Yes, it's hard to open the door. Yes, you do need to get lucky to get your script to the right person. But if you really do the work, 
if you really can create a script that works, you have an opportunity to truly compete because most of the work is so bad. However, it also means that the coverage reader or the producer is deciding whether they are going to read your script or skim your script from the very first page. In fact, the reader is deciding whether they are going to read your script or skim your script from the very first line. So the second step to screenwriting success is to make sure the first thing in your script knocks their socks off. To make sure that the very first thing you write makes announces to the reader, hey, I promise you, this is going to be awesome. That it surprises their expectations. That it makes them smile. It makes them laugh. It makes them cry. It makes them feel something. You want to make sure that that first image is beautifully written and closely observed. Because that first image is actually going to prime them for everything that comes after. Um, Jessica Hines, who teaches our meditative writing classes here at the studio, um, has done a lot of research into the neurology of, of priming. And what priming means is the way that our expectations as we enter uh, an experience can be manipulated. And how the way that our expectations as we enter an experience actually change the experience that we have. Um, I actually learned this back in the day when I was a uh, off-Broadway producer and director. Um, when you're working in theater in New York City, it's a kind of sad situation because you start to realize that a lot of your audience isn't actually coming out for a night of entertainment. They're coming out to support their friends, and those are very different expectations. Um, when you go see a Broadway play, you're expecting to be entertained, and you just plop down, you know, 200 bucks to be entertained. Um, and if you ever have gone to Broadway play, you've probably noticed even the bad ones tend to get standing ovations because the audience has been primed to have a good experience. They came expecting to have a good experience, and they end up having that good experience, oftentimes even if the play isn't as amazing as you'd expect. Um, the off-Broadway community and the off-off-Broadway community is just the opposite. The low-budget theater community, most of your audience, at least in the initial performances, is, set up, is made up of people who really expect this play to be bad, but they've got a friend in the cast, they know the set designer, they're coming to be supportive. And that's the worst kind of audience because that's an audience who's expecting not to like it and is already anticipating the awkward conversation they're going to have with their friend after as they pretend to like it. So what we used to do is we used to spend a lot of money on set. And I used to stick a set that looked like a... I mean, not a Broadway set because we were in an off-Broadway house, but that looked like really stunningly impressive. And there was, in a black box theater, there's never a curtain. So as the people came into the theater, what they were seeing was a set that they would never usually see in a, in a low-budget production. Instead of being a couple of tables and chairs, it was something stunning. 
And what this did was it primed the reader, the, it primed the viewer. It primed them to expect to have a good time. Um, your first line primes the viewer. The first image of your script primes the viewer. So that means if your first image is normal, if your first image is an image that we have seen before, if your first image isn't perfectly perfectly realized, if there's something not truthful about it, if there's something manipulative about it, if you haven't totally landed it, it means that you are priming your reader to go, eh, to already start expecting, oh, it's another one of these. It's going to be another boring script. Whereas if you can start with an image that really grabs us, that really shocks us, that really surprises us, if you can start with something beautiful and powerful and exciting, you are priming your audience to go, wow, wow, this might be a good one. You are shaking them out of the expectation that the movie is going to be bad and into the expectation that, oh my God, maybe this is a diamond in the rough. Because here's the interesting thing. The truth is coverage readers and producers, they are a jaded bunch. But every single one of them wants to discover the diamond in the rough. The coverage reader wants to discover the diamond of the rough, the young writer that nobody knows about. Because the coverage reader is usually an aspiring writer or an aspiring producer. And they want to be able to go to their production company and go, look at my incredible taste. The producer wants to find the diamond in the rough because professional writers who are good are very rare. And they're very expensive. And you, as a new writer, are cheap. So finding a young writer who's really got it, that you've met before anybody else has met it, is a very exciting thing for a producer. In order to get them into that mindset, we have to start with the very first image. So first rule of screenwriting success, make sure you're wearing your pants. Make sure your script is really ready to go when you show up for your job interview. Second rule of screenwriting success, make sure your first image rocks. Make sure your first line rocks. From the first line, the producer is priming themselves for what their experience is likely to be. And because we tend to perceive what we expect, um, that perception will actually change their experience. Um, the next step is to look at the rest of that first page. Because the truth is, by the time the producer, or by the time the coverage reader has made it to the end of the first page, they have already decided whether they are gonna finish this script or whether they're gonna skim it or whether they are going to set it down. Um, when I was a producer, I, this was in the days before iPads, so my desk had stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of scripts. And I wanted to read all of them. But if I had started reading then and was still reading now, I still wouldn't have been done all the scripts that I needed to read for that job. 
So what would happen is I would work until 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and I would know that I really should go home and read a script. And I would look at my desk, and the first thing that I would do is I would pick the thin script. Not the script that was too thin, because if it was too thin, you're like, well, this probably isn't a script. But I would pick the thin script, the script that looked like more like 90 pages than the one that looked like 120 pages. And there was a very specific reason for that. I was reading it at 10 o'clock at night, and I was grateful to save myself those 30 pages. Same is true for coverage readers. A coverage reader gets paid the same amount for a 120-page script as they get paid for a 95-page script. So they feel a lot better. They feel primed for a short script. So, number one, where are your pants? Number two, your first image, your first page. This is where your reader is deciding whether they want to write your script. Step three, keep it short. You've got to do it in under 100 pages. At the very most, 105 pages. You must keep it short. And don't keep it short by changing the, the formatting. Don't keep it short by by changing the page layout. Even if they can't see the difference, the feeling of reading something that's overly dense slows the producer down, slows the reader down. You've got to keep it short. You've got to learn how to make your story stronger by cutting things out. And in fact, this is one of the most powerful things in revision. Um, oftentimes, when we're revising our scripts, we think we're making them better by adding stuff. And that is almost never the case. Almost always, we can make a script stronger by cutting it down. So as you revise your script, you want to be thinking, what is the core of this scene? What is the essence of the scene? What is the most important element of the scene? What is the most important element of the moment? And we want to be cutting everything that doesn't support that so that we're left with only the very best stuff. We want to be identifying the things that are good and we want to be cutting them out so that we're left only with the stuff that's great. We want to turn our scripts into the greatest hits version of that script. And what this allows us to do, number one, it allows us to pass the, the with test to have a nice short script that a producer is excited to read. But it also allows us to speed the rate of the read. It allows our, our producers to breeze through the script. And the easier they breeze through the script, the easier they can skim it, the more likely they are to finish it. We want our readers to make it all the way to the end, and that is all about conciseness. So, number one, make sure you're wearing your pants. Make sure your script is really ready to go. Number two, Make sure your first image and your first page are the very best thing in your script. Save the best stuff you got for first. Number three, keep it short. Find conciseness in your lines. Find conciseness in your scenes. Find conciseness in your acts. Say everything the fastest way possible. Think of your script like a poem. 
if the word isn't supporting the script, if the word isn't vital, cut it out. Okay. Number four. By page 10, your producer already knows whether they want to make the script. By page 10, the coverage reader has already decided whether they can sell this script to a producer. Page 10 is a moment called the inciting incident. Um, if you study with me in New York or online or with any of my screenwriting teachers, you know that we don't use the word inciting incident. We don't like it. And, and the reason I don't like it is um, Yes, inciting incident comes from a guy named Sid Field, um, and, and Sid Field was a, a very brilliant, um, a very brilliant teacher. Um, he was really the father of the industry of, of the idea of teaching screenwriting. But a lot of his ideas are a little bit outdated at this point. Um, and so Sid Field had this idea that on page ten would be a moment that opened the door to change, that incited the events of the script. Now, I don't like this term. Because the truth of the matter is every scene has an inciting incident in it. If you're building your structure right, the truth is that every scene starts with a character who's in a normal state, whatever that normal state is from whatever happened to them before. So if I entered this teleconference, well, I'll tell you the truth. I rode my bike home from work today. And so I entered the, this teleconference, and because I rode my bike home from work, I entered this teleconference um, a little sweaty. I had my air conditioner blasting, um, and that actually changed the way I came into the scene. Um, so we come into a scene in a state determined by whatever happened to us in the previous scene, and then a moment occurs, a moment that opens the door to change. And that moment is an inciting incident for the scene, and then the character makes a choice about whether they're going to go through that door. So I like to think that every scene has an inciting incident, but a producer, because of the work of Sid Field, is looking for a very specific kind of moment on page 10. Now, it is important to understand that God did not come down from the heavens to tell you to put your inciting incident on page 10. Sid Field came down from the heavens to tell you this. So if you look at a movie like The Godfather, the inciting incident is when the Godfather gets shot. And that doesn't happen until page 45. The moment that opens the door to change for Michael is when his father gets shot. Um, however, in the script, because even Francis Ford Coppola knew that producers were looking for this, there's a fake inciting incident. And the fake inciting incident is the moment where Johnny Fontaine shows up and we start to think that the Godfather is going to go to Los Angeles and take over the film industry. And you notice what happens at that inciting incident is we start to pitch ourselves the movie. We start to tell ourselves the story of the movie, what we expect to happen. Now, we're wrong in The Godfather. We're not actually right. But that inciting incident needs to leave us pitching a movie that's exciting enough that we think a producer can sell it. 
that if somebody said, oh, it's a movie about that to us, we would want to come see it. And that has to happen on page 10. By page 10, your audience needs to be pitching themselves the story of the movie. By page 10, your character, a better, more organic way of thinking about this, your character needs to be pitching themselves the story of the movie. Oh my God, I think I'm on a ride like this. They don't have to be right. But the journey that gets promised by that moment needs to be exciting enough that we want to go see the movie. In, um, in The Wrestler, beautiful little independent film, it's a movie about a down-and-out wrestler. He used to be Hulk Hogan, and now he's wrestling in, um, in uh, high school gymnasiums. The inciting incident he gets a rematch with his old nemesis, the Iron Sheik. And this launches us into a story where we think we understand what the story is going to be. We're going to, we think we're going to watch uh, this character go on a journey that is going to lead him to the kind of, to, to a recapturing of the feeling that he once had in the ring, to recapturing that old glory. Now, the truth is, there's a big twist coming for him because he ends up having a heart attack. Um, and by page 30, we start to realize we're actually going to watch the story of a character having to leave the ring. So um, you can see how that inciting incident worked there. It allowed us to pitch ourselves a story. It was wrong, but it allowed us to pitch ourselves a story that seemed interesting enough that we would want to go see it, that we'd want to plop down our $15 and buy a ticket. Um, a more, uh, a more big-budget movie, a movie like The Matrix, um, on page 10, we have Follow the White Rabbit. And he goes on this whole journey, and the agents come after him. And we start to realize, oh, I get it. He, this guy might actually be the one. And there might be a world happening underneath our world that we're not aware of. And you can see how we are pitching ourselves the movie, even though we don't know so many of the things that are about to happen in The Matrix. So whether you're working super indie or huge budget movie, by page 10, your audience, your reader, must be able to pitch themselves the script. If you show your first 10 pages to somebody, ask them what the movie is about. If they're not able to pitch it in a really compelling way to you, you know your first 10 pages are not working. Now, I want to share something very important with you. If you are not placing in a contest, I don't mean not winning, I mean not placing. If you're not getting to the second round of a contest, you can almost be guaranteed not guaranteed because there are just crazy readers out there who have a bad day sometimes. But you've got a 90% chance that you have a problem in your first 10 pages. You have a 90% chance, and I would say if you don't place, if you submit to 10 contests and don't place in any of them, you have a 99% chance that your problem is in the first 10 pages. 
and I'm going to tell you why. Now, before I tell you why, I need to tell you I have nothing to do with the judging of Table Read. I don't know how Table Read judges their scripts. Um, I'm not involved, and they may be an exception to this. I don't know, but I know that most contests cannot afford to pay readers to read every page of every script. They just cannot afford to do it. So what's happening usually in the first round is that scripts are being, the first 10 pages of the script is being read. And most of the scripts are going to a pile that says, do not consider. And some of the scripts are going to a pile that says, read the whole script. And that read the whole script pile is really the second round. So there is a very, very good chance that if your script did not make it to the second round of a contest, that you've got a problem in your first 10 pages. If you're making it to the second round but not making it further, then you know you probably have a problem in the structure of your story. There's something going wrong later in your script. You, you had them and then you lost them. But if you are not making it to the second round, the problem almost always is in your first 10 pages. And this is true in the commercial world as well. If you're not getting any traction on your script, the problem almost always is in the first 10 pages. There is a great example of this. There's a movie called Michael Clayton. Uh, Michael Clayton is a beautiful little George Clooney movie. Um, and it's a very quiet movie. It's a thriller, and it goes to some really dark places by the end. But it starts very slow. Um, in fact, it was part of the goal of the writer. The writer is a very big-budget writer, and he's spoken extensively about the idea that he wanted to write a law movie, a lawyer movie, that didn't take place in the courtroom, that took place in what he called the kitchens of the law offices, the places where the real stuff went down. Um, now, this is, from a pr producerial perspective, like the worst pitch idea ever, right? Can you imagine walking into the uh, pitch meeting and telling your producer, look, here's my idea. Instead of seeing all the exciting trial stuff, like a few good men, we're just going to see the really boring parts of law. It's a terrible idea, but it's also a brilliant idea because it was a story no one else had told, and he had a really beautiful character who went on this gorgeous journey. He starts the movie by saying he's a janitor. And he ends the movie by saying he's Shiva, the god of death. It's this character who goes on this really profound journey, and it's really about selling out. Um, and it's written by a writer who felt like a sellout, who went on this incredible journey to find his truth and finally write the script that he really wanted to write. And so the main character is a, is a scared lawyer who is not living up to his own standards. And he goes on a journey of finding his authenticity. So it's a beautiful little movie, but how did he sell it? Well, if you remember that film, we start out and um, George Clooney has been brought in to fix a big problem. He's a lawyer. One of his clients, this horrible rich man, has just killed somebody in a hit and run. And it's George Clooney's job to fix the problem. And... He hates himself for what he's doing. And as he leaves that, that office, as he leaves that, that, um, that man's house, 
he stops his car in the middle of this field and there are all these horses and he gets out of the car and he walks towards the horses and he puts his hand on the horse's face and you don't even know why but there's this beautiful image of the cold breath of the horse and then behind him his car explodes this is the first 10 pages of michael clayton even though it's a movie set in the kitchens of law offices, they start with an explosion of a car. And you can see what happens. It makes a promise to the reader. I promise you, even though this may seem slow, it's going to go to an exciting place. I promise you this is a thriller. By page 10, you not only want your, your reader to be pitching themselves the story of the movie, you also want your reader to be feeling the genre of the movie feeling the type of movie that they're in. So what's interesting about Michael Clayton is that first image is not actually the beginning of the movie. In a seven-act structure, those of you who know me know that I teach a seven-act structure instead of a three-act structure. Um, in a seven-act structure, what we're actually seeing is act five of the movie. And what the writer's done is he's moved that act five. He's moved it to the beginning and then flashed back from, from it to catch up. He actually ends up catching up to it in Act 5. Uh, and what's so interesting about that is he moved it for a reason. And the reason he moved it was both artistic and commercial. Even though this was his indie film, he knew that if he didn't hook them and didn't make it feel like a thriller in the first 10 pages, he was never going to sell the movie. So the first four steps, number one, Make sure you got your pants on before you show up for the job interview. Make sure your script is really ready to go. Get yourself some professional feedback. You're hoping to make a lot of money in the script. You're asking someone to spend millions of dollars producing the script. Make sure your script is really at a professional level. Number two, make sure that your first image and your first page are grabbing the attention of the audience. Save your very best for first. Number three, keep it short. Work for precision in your lines. Work, um, for those of you who have taken our craft classes, you know that we focus on how to hypnotize the reader with your action, how to put your action down so that instead of reading your script, your, your producer, your reader starts seeing your script. So you want to write with precision. You want to write nice short lines that are easily skimmable but you also want to start thinking about how can you put your work on the page so that a non-creative salesperson or a skimming reader <coughs> can lose themselves in it can forget that they're reading like you do when you're reading a great novel and start instead playing the movie and the movie screen in their mind actually seeing it experiencing it as if it was real Number four, by page 10, you've got to hit an inciting incident that allows us to pitch ourselves not only the story of the movie, but the feeling of the movie, the genre that we're in. Step number five, though, is the most important step. If you want to be successful as a writer, you need to learn to write truthfully. And that's going to mean letting go of a lot of things that make you feel safe as a writer. There will come a time when you can choose to save the cat 
or hero's journey your way through a script. There will come a time when you are a working professional writer and you have strong contacts and you can use a formula in order to speed yourself through a 12-week script, if you choose. There will come a time when you can sell out. But this is not the time. No real producer is going to buy a formulaic script from a new writer. They're just not going to do it. And your formulaic script is not going to be the script that wins the big festival, that wins the big contest, that grabs the attention of the great star or the great director. Not now, not when you're new. There's really only one thing that you have to sell as a screenwriter. And that is this thing called your voice. And voice is a scary word for a lot of screenwriters because a lot of screenwriters, we don't know, like, what if my voice isn't good enough? What if my voice isn't unique enough? What if I don't really have a voice or haven't really developed a voice? Um, and oftentimes the word voice gets locked into this word talent, which is another scary word because no writer has ever used the word talent in this sentence. I have so much talent. Really, the word, the, the way that we use talent is a way to beat ourselves up. I don't have enough talent. What if somebody has more talent than me? What if I used to have talent, but I lost it? What if I'm not talented? Um, so I'd like to kind of redefine the way we look at voice, and I'd like to redefine for you the way we look at talent. Um, what I believe about talent, I believe that talent is that very rare ability to write like yourself. Talent is that very rare ability to write like yourself. And voice is the same thing. Voice is the ability to write like you. And the beautiful thing is that you can already do voice. You can do voice right now, except the problem is that there is an inner sensor that is in your way. There is an inner sensor that is in all of our ways. Um, and that inner sensor was created by years of our education system. Uh, for me, I remember uh, the person who put my inner sensor in place. If you, um, if you look, think back about your childhood, um, you, you probably have a person like this too. Mine was Mrs. Reese in second grade. And I remember Mrs. Reese taught me this incredibly valuable concept called think before you speak. And I'll never forget the moment because my poor friend, Seth Fishman, she had him by the arm and she was literally shaking this poor kid up and down by his arm, screaming, think before you speak. And I remember as a kid, watching this happen and thinking, wow, this is a really incredible tool. I've never thought of this before. Think before you speak. This is brilliant, especially if it can avoid Seth Fishman's fate for me. And if you think back, there was probably somebody for you too who taught you to think before you spoke. And you probably can remember how hard that was as a kid. You could probably remember the moment where you, you spoke and then you realized you weren't supposed to say that and you tried to take it back. You can remember the distance 
between your voice as a child and the censor. Because the truth is all children are artists. When you were a child, you did not worry about your My Little Pony story arc. You did not outline the hero's journey for your matchbox cars. And nobody had to force you to play. You wanted to play. It was natural and it was easy. What happens as we get older is the gap between the sensor and our voice as writers grows narrower and narrower and narrower until we start to identify with the sensor, until we start to think that the sensor is us. And unfortunately, the way that screenwriting is commonly taught, screenwriting is not commonly taught by writers, which is a mind-blowing concept, but there's a very specific reason for it. Screenwriters get paid. If you wanted to study playwriting, pick your favorite playwright, Google them, and you will find the school where they are teaching because playwrights are broke. You want to study poetry? Find your favorite poet. poet. Guaranteed they are teaching somewhere because poets are broke. Screenwriters make a lot of money especially successful screenwriters, the kind that you would want to study from. And that means that although there are some teachers, there are some of us who truly love teaching, and if you're lucky enough to find one of those teachers, you want to stay with those teachers forever, there are not enough of those teachers to actually fill the demand for screenwriting classes. Universities tend to hire academics. They tend to hire people with PhDs. Uh, and those are very different from the people who actually tend to get hired in Hollywood. Um, not a lot of PhDs working as screenwriters in Hollywood. Um, so oftentimes what's happening is the books are not being written by screenwriters. The books are being write, written by critics. And instead of looking at the first draft of a script and asking how do we take this beautiful raw material and shape it, the the person who is teaching you is instead looking at the final draft of the script and doesn't even know what the first draft looked like. Um, the second problem is that formula is just a hell of a lot easier to write in a book than process. It's a lot easier to tell a screenwriter to do this, then do this, then do this, than it is to say, hey, look, there are no rules but there are things that you can learn that will help you develop your voice and your art and your craft. It's a lot easier to put a bunch of rules into a book and make people feel happy, or God forbid, sell a screenwriting software that tells you how to build the journey of your character. It's a lot easier to do that to make money than it is to tell people that the real answer is to find your own voice. But that is the real answer because your voice is the only thing that only you can give to a producer. You are never going to win on craft, not until you've been doing this for 30 years. Your craft is not going to match the craft of an experienced writer until you've spent a lifetime doing this. You've got to win on art. You have to show them the voice that only you have. You need to show them the way of seeing the world that only you see it. And here's the wonderful thing, is that you have 
that inside of you already. In our work at the studio, we try to explore this from three different angles. Uh, we have our meditative writing classes, which are about the purely the art of screenwriting, setting all of the the ideas of craft and the rules and the things you're supposed to be doing aside, and instead connecting to our character's emotional needs, connecting to our own emotional needs, connecting to our instincts and learning to get everything you see, hear, and feel on the page exactly the way you see, feel, and hear it. Instead of outlining the perfect structure, instead beginning by trying to create the perfect cookie dough. Um, there's a wonderful meta metaphor that Jess Hines, who teaches those classes, uses that I just love. She says, you know, when you make, when you make cookies, you don't start off by taking a cookie cutter and trying to pour just the right amount of egg and just the right amount of salt and just the right amount of sugar and just the right amount of flour into that cookie cutter. You could never make a cookie that way. And yet we try to make screenplays that way. What we really want to be doing is we want to be pouring the we want to be pouring the ingredients into a nice big bowl, mixing them around, creating the very best cookie dough that we can possibly create. And once you've created that cookie dough, then you can start to shape it into any shape you want, which is the other end of the spectrum of what we do at the studio. Where in our craft classes, where we start to develop the tools which with, with which you can apply craft to that raw material, using not every tool and not every rule, but the precise tools and the precise mm -hmm. rules you need to shape your own writing. And then the third way we approach this is through structure, is through learning to connect the emotional needs of your characters and the craft of a writer in order to find not the formula, but the organic structure of your character's journey, the way that your character pursues their wants and the way those wants lead them to change. And so you can think about these three approaches in your own writing. These are three doors that you can go through. And you don't have to go through all of them at the same time. Although what we're ultimately looking for is a dance between all three of these things in our writing. Art, craft, and structure fusing to create screenwriting. So just to review before we open it up to questions, these are the five steps to screenwriting success. Number one. Make sure you don't show up at the job interview without your pants on. Put in the time, get the professional feedback that you need to build the story that you want to tell. Number two, remember that the first image and the first page prime your reader to decide whether they're going to read or skim. Number three, keep it short and use your craft to hypnotize your reader. Allow them to read easily and see easily so that they can stop reading and start experiencing. Step number four, make sure by page 10 that, you, that your reader is capable of pitching themselves the story and that that story seems exciting enough to be worthy of a movie. It doesn't have to be the right pitch, but it needs to feel like the genre of the movie. 
and it needs to feel compelling enough that it is worth going on the journey with these characters. Remember by page 10, if the producer hasn't decided they want to buy it, they are going to stop reading it. And number five, the most important thing, this all begins with your truth. That ultimately none of this is important unless you are telling the story that you really want to tell. Unless you are taking your characters on a journey that actually matters to you. Unless you are putting your words and your characters on the page in the way that only you can. And I want to talk to, the, to you about this in relation to notes. Because a lot of you are going to get notes. A lot of you are going to get notes from festivals where you're basically paying a coverage reader. You're usually paying $150 for the coverage maker reader to make $50. Um, if you're paying less, then you know your coverage reader is making less. Um, and those written notes are often passed off as if they were development notes. And so it's very important to understand that the notes that a coverage reader, I don't care how knowledgeable, blasted out in 10 minutes after blowing through your script, even if they are brilliant and caring and are trying to do their best, those notes are not going to help you. And the reason they're not going to help you is because most likely they are just a regurgitation of somebody else's formula. They're just a regurgitation of the kinds of things that this coverage reader is already used to seeing. And if you write the things that the coverage reader is already used to seeing, you'll get positive coverage. But you're not going to build a career because people don't want to buy the script that they've seen before from a new writer. They'll buy the script they've seen before from an experienced writer, but they're not going to buy it from a new writer. From a new writer, you want to buy the script that you can only get from them. So how do you know if your feedback is good? Um, if you've worked with us at the studio, you know we have a ProTrack program that pairs you one-on-one -on -one with a professional writer um, with whom you meet every week or every other week. Um, you work through your script 10 pages at a time. And if you've experienced ProTrack, then you know that that program is like a real development meeting with a producer, except it's with somebody who's on your side and cares about your script. Because if you sit down with a good producer, a good producer doesn't give you a bunch of typed up notes. A good producer who's actually invested in your script sits down and they talk to you about your script. They talk to you about what you're going for in the script. They talk to you about what they connected to in the script. They talk to you about what they didn't understand in the script. They ask you questions about the script and you guys come up with answers together. That's the way the real development process works when it works well in Hollywood. Um, in Hollywood, usually that development process is happening with a producer and oftentimes that person doesn't really know how to speak to you, which leads us to the next thing that's important about notes. If a person tells you, this is a Neil Gaiman quote, Neil Gaiman's a wonderful novelist, and he says, if somebody tells you exactly what is wrong with your writing and exactly how to fix it, they are always wrong. But if somebody tells you their experience of your writing, they are always right. The best notes do not tell you what to do. If you're working with a great teacher, 
one of the ways you'll know you're working with a great teacher is that that great teacher is not going to tell you what to do. Instead, that great teacher is going to ask you questions that help you discover what to do for yourself, that help you discover your own voice and your own track and your own characters and your own theme. That great teacher is going to teach you craft to apply to your voice instead of rules to shape your voice into their formula. So as you're getting feedback, I want you to know that you should never take coverage seriously. You should never take advice seriously. You should never take rules seriously. If someone is telling you what your script should do, they are doing you a disservice. Instead, I want you to seek out the people who ask you the powerful questions, who point in a direction rather than telling you what to do, who give you the freedom to explore so that you can get your voice on the page. So I'm going to open this up to questions. Um, if uh, Hold on one second. There we go. If you have a question, um, you can hit star six on your phone. Um, and we'll try to get to as many of the questions as we possibly can. Um, also, if you have, uh, if you're curious about me, uh, I have a, a podcast where I break down um, screenplays uh, that's totally free. You can find it on my website, writeyourscreenplay.com. We look at all different kinds of movies that are in the theater right now, and we look at how those, uh, how those movies can can be uh, can can teach us as screenwriters. So we look at good movies and we look at bad movies and we break them down and we talk about how they're built and how you as a screenwriter can learn from them. Um, we also have a lot of classes. We have classes in New York City. We have classes online. We have a one-on-one -on -one ProTrack program um, that pairs you with a professional writer to mentor you through the writing of your class. And we do retreats. We have a screenwriting retreat coming up in Vermont that's going to be all about television writing uh, in connection with the ITV uh, television festival and um, we we do a, a screenwriting retreat <coughs> every summer in Costa Rica so I don't see any questions coming in so go ahead and hit star six if you have a question because I would love to answer your questions and it can really be on any topic we've got another half hour so any topic that you would like to me to talk about, I'd be delighted to. Okay, great. Here's the first question. Hello, who am I speaking to? Congratulations. Hi, uh, I, my name is Ken Collins. I'm, uh, I was number, I guess, the sixth finalist. Thank you. Um, thank you, first of all, for, for um, your uh, help with this. This is actually very, very helpful. Um, one of my biggest concerns, I've, if there, and this is a two-part question, primarily is um, I find myself entering screenplay competitions, and I, I I do fairly well, but generally there's this sort of dead space afterward, and I'm not entirely sure, and maybe this isn't an appropriate question, but I figured I'd throw this out anyway. I'm not entirely sure how to advance after that. Yeah. 
um, after I've, I've been a finalist in several competitions and I find that Have after, you, been, um, you know, kind of the dust I'm is settled and that sort of thing, smaller, I'm <laughs> not entirely sure like, how to, like, uh, uh, how to, how to move right? forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I've done table read. Uh, I was a finalist in Fade In mm-hmm. about 10 years ago. Um, yeah. a, a couple others. And it's... Um, and, and I have... A, one of the things about writers, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, is that a lot of us, as artists go, kind of have a... There's a, a paucity of understanding as really how, I mean, we might know what we know about writing, but as far as threading our way through the, <laughs> That's a great question. you know, the, the structure so, so of agents and that sort of thing, it um, can be rather daunting. So what does, so like what does the, being a finalist or even a winner um, in a competition a get you? In your career. There are going to be agents knocking. Um, if you, you know, if you get invited to the Sundance Lab, um, if you're a woman over 40 and you get invited to Meryl Streep's Lab, there are certain contests that, that just having won the contest makes a huge difference in your life. And there's no doubt about it. Um, with smaller contests, there is great value to them. If I didn't think there was value, I wouldn't sponsor them. Um, I think there's great value to them because I think it's a chance for you to see where your work stands in relation to other writers who are kind of at your level. So other new writers. So um, it's one of the reasons I love Table Read is I feel like, okay, Table Read gives you a prize that's real, right? In that you're you're actually going to see your work performed and usually you're going to see your work performed at a place where there are producers and you just might be able to get somebody to show up um, and hear it. So, so I think that that's really valuable. Um, but generally, the value of smaller contests, a, a lot of producers have been burned by small contests. Um, because unfortunately, right now, there are too many of them. Um, and a lot of them, some of them are, are, are very legitimate. And some of them, honestly, are really fly-by-night. And the fly-by-night ones oftentimes don't get enough they don't get enough contestants. And so what ends up happening is scripts win that don't, that still are not at a professional level. Um, and sometimes, you know, when you're in the Nickel Fellowship, the truth is you're competing against professional writers. Um, but oftentimes in the smaller contests, you're really competing uh, among, among amateur writers. And so what's happened to a lot of producers is a lot of producers, they get excited, they, they get a contest winner, they read the script, and they're like, what is this? I can't produce this. Um, and, and so there's been a kind of cooling uh, among some producers. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, I've had students who have won contests or who have placed in contests who have gotten calls from producers, who have gotten requests from their scripts. Um, and, you know, so sometimes luck happens out of that you know the right per- person reads the right article at the right time your script is in the right genre um i had a a, a student um uh who i just just saw again in nashville um 
but she was um, she was one of the finalists in Table Read last year, and um, and she ended up with a manager out of it. Um, she had the right script for the right manager at the right time. So um, if that's not happening for you, there are a couple possibilities. Um, number one, it may just be that the luck hasn't happened, and you just have to keep plugging away till it does. It may be that the script that won is is a, a strong concept that the, the contest likes, but that that the way you've done your log line or the title, the producer isn't seeing enough dollar sign to reach out about it. So it may actually be thinking about, you know, how do you announce the log line? Do you have a problem with the title? Is there something you can do to make it sexier? Um, the other way that you can use contests, um, I don't think... If it's a small contest and you're like, hey, I, I was number six in table read my script, there are going to be some um, some producers who are like, okay, cool. And there are going to be a lot of producers who are like, yeah, yeah, I've been on, down that contest road before. Um, but if you call a producer and you're like, I've placed at 12, you know, I've been, I've been a finalist in 12 screenwriting contests. You know, if you, if you start to amass like a large number of wins... Um, it makes it easier sometimes to get the door open. So when you're talking to the assistant, you could say, hey, look, I know you guys don't normally accept unsolicited submissions. I'm happy to sign whatever you need me to sign. But look, this script has been vetted. It's, you know, I was, I've, I've been in the top 10 of 12 different festivals. You know, um, this script is really ready to go. And and I'm bringing it to you for a reason. I know that you're the right producer for this movie, and let me tell you why. Um, and so, so that's the next thing is you really want to target your producers. Look, you, it sounds like your script is doing well. Um, it sounds like you're having success. It sounds like at least among the contestants in a smaller festival, you are, you are near the top. Um, it probably be, would be worth it for you to start submitting to some bigger festivals and see if you have the same success there. Um, submit to Austin, submit to Nickel, um, submit to some of the ScreenCraft uh, contests. You know, look at look at some of the, the, the bigger ones and see if um, if if you're getting as far there. If you're not, then you may have a problem with your script. In other words, you may have a script that's competitive in a small pond, but not competitive in the big pond yet. Um, if you do start to place in those festivals, I don't care if you win, but do you make it to the next round? Um, then you could start to go, okay, I have a solid script. And then it may be time to sit down and go, okay, how do I identify the right producers for this script? Um, and you can actually start with casting. Think about who's playing your lead. Go to IMDb. Find every movie they've ever done. Um, don't pick Leonardo DiCaprio because you're not going to get to Leo. And he's booked up for the next 10 years. Pick, pick the, the, the actor who needs your script. The person who has a recognizable name and is trying to take the next step in their career. So, you know, um, Guardians of the Galaxy, such a smart move for Chris Pratt, right? He was a name that everybody loved, right? Everybody loved him from Parks and Rec. 
And the last thing that Chris Pratt wanted to do was spend the rest of his life playing the slovenly funny next door neighbor. So Guardians of the Galaxy is a perfect script for him. It makes a lot of sense. It's a perfect role for him. It's funny, but there's some drama to it. He gets to show off who he really is. He gets to get his abs rocked out and reestablish himself as an action star. It, it's a script that makes sense for him. So you want to find those people who are, who are not Chris Pratt now, but Chris Pratt, Pratt right after Parks and Rec, who would, who would be perfect. Make a list of every movie they've been in then start looking at producers who produce their movies. And you'll probably start to see that there are certain producers who are on a lot of their movies. Those are producers who have strong relationships with them. So then you can start to go, oh, it makes sense to bring it to you. You're connected to Chris. You know, I think this would be perfect for Chris. I see you guys have done three movies together. You know, it's in the same genre of the kind of stuff. It's about the same kind of themes that you guys deal with. And now the producer knows you're not just some other jerk throwing stuff up against the wall to see if it sticks. That you've actually done your research. You got a script that's vetted. You know why you're coming to them. Um, and this makes it a lot easier to get through the door. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ken. Hello, who am I speaking to? Hello, Elisa. Lisa. Hi. Um, yes. Thank you also for this. It's a really um, interesting point of view. And one of the reasons you may not be getting that many questions is because you've covered a lot of territory. Uh-huh. Um, I think um, my question is really more in the craft area. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Michael Clayton and that, uh, you know, sort of the opening detail or visual of um, the horse and the breath, and I'm really, you know, and I, I understand part of this is voice, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, screenplays are different than novels, and I'm just looking for a little guidance in how much of that detail, you know, is there a way... So, so um, there's not an easy answer to You know, this. any kind of... Um, um, you know, I teach, I teach a four-week class trick, about this. Um, you know, in terms of so, what... So, you know, this what is, is a complicated question. You, I don't want to give you, you a know, formulaic appropriate answer. One for that story. Um, what I would think instead, in my first draft, all I want to do, I'm not worried about what's appropriate or not. The worrying about what's appropriate is always going to screw you up. So in my first draft, I'm really just thinking... What do I see? What do I hear? What do I feel? I am using my senses. I'm stepping into the character and I'm playing the movie in the movie screen in my mind. And what I'm really looking for is verbs. I'm looking for the verbs that the character does. Um, My director is always going to cut on action. So I want to build my script around action. And then, you know, in my Write Your Screenplay class, I'll, I'll get much deeper and show you how, like, by starting here, this actually ends up leading to your structure in a scene or in an act. Um, but that's a, a much deeper concept. But the, on the simplest level, look for the verbs. Look for the actions your character is doing. So make sure that your action is moving. Write exactly what you see. So play it in the movie screen in your mind. And write exactly what you see in exactly the order you see it. 
So let's say, you know, I'm looking around my apartment right now and uh, I just got back from a trip from the Berkshires to the Berkshires. So my cat is just sitting on top of my, uh, my uh, backpack uh, that's still not unpacked. Um, and that's the first thing I see. But then I notice, well, I don't really have any action there, right? It's a still image, and that means it's not going to feel like a movie. So if I just wrote down, you know, a gray cat uh, is, is sitting on top of a half-unpacked uh, 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 backpack uh, in a, you know, uh, in a, uh, an office uh, that's decorated with a lot of art, Um what ends up happening is I'm giving description, but I'm giving, I'm not giving movie description. I'm not giving something that the audience can play in the movie screen on their mind. So instead I might slow it down and I might go like, let's see the movement. Uh, a gray cat um, claws open a, 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 a brown backpack, uh, roots through, tossing, uh, 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 toiletries, clothing, uh, until he finally found, finds uh, a, uh, a, a small uh, 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 paperclip. Uh, he bats the paperclip around the art studio, knocking over the easel. Uh, a beautiful painting spills to the ground. And so you see what we're doing now, and I'm not saying that this is the greatest uh, opening sequence ever devised, but we're now tracking a little story about a cat who's looking for a paperclip and totally destroying everything in his owner's apartment. Um, so the way I'm going to start is I'm just going to write exactly what I see without judgment, even if it doesn't have action in it. Then I'm going to notice what the elements are and I'm going to add action, add verbs until I start to find the story. Um, the last piece to that is that you, you're going to then go through your writing and you're going to look for anything that feels normal. So if I say, you know, um, a cat grooms itself, that's normal. That's the kind of thing that we expect a cat to do. Um, a cat plays with a string. We expect a cat to do it. So we don't learn anything specific about that cat. But if the cat is rooting through a backpack destroying all the clothes inside, we learn a little bit about the personality of that cat. So you want to kind of seek and destroy anything that feels normal, anything that we could assume, and instead look for what makes this version of it a little more specific. What do I see? So sometimes I'll just kind of close my eyes and I'll just keep looking until I find something that I didn't expect. And I know that if I didn't expect it, that probably other people didn't expect it. And this means that now I am in, now I'm in the outside of the world of normal and into the world of interesting. So if you're describing the cat like everybody else describes the cat, I can't see your voice. But if you're describing the cat in a way that only you see it, in a way that surprised you, you know now your voice is starting to make it onto the page. It's about recognizing this as a process and um, really learning. Um, in my Write Your Screenplay class, I talk a lot about this, you know, that really we're improving on the page. And part of improving is really just learning to say yes and to yourself, learning to accept whatever 
whatever you see, hear, and feel, and then yes, and it. So instead of saying, oh, that's not good, saying that's what I've got, now how do I find, how do I make it cool? How do I look more closely at it? Awesome, thank you so much, Elise. Hello, who am I speaking to? Hello, Barbara. Thank you. Oh, this is Barbara. Um, I agree with uh, everyone that's spoken so far. This was really, really helpful and interesting, especially really like this last part about the cat because I think that, that just the image of the two images make such a difference, you know, in, in, in visually what's going on in, on the screen. But I, I, wanted, I had a kind of a question that related. When I first moved to Los Angeles in the early and mid-'90s, I actually was an intern at a production company. And it, I don't know if you think that is valuable for a writer to do. What I found, first of all, my first reaction to that was it was kind of chilling, that me, as somebody that had just moved to L.A. and was trying to write screenwriting, that I was going to be covering other people's scripts. But uh, I was required to sit there during the day and, you know, write the coverage and so forth. But I was, but I was allowed to, and I learned very fast, again, if I didn't get caught up in the first ten pages, they said just, you know, put it aside. And, um, but when I... Uh, the ones that I did read that were really remarkable was they just jumped off the page, and I just learned so much as a writer reading those scripts. And it's, I can I have one in mind that just I still actually have the script, and mm -hmm. I thought, mm -hmm. oh, this would just make an incredible movie. It was kind of a Billy Elliot type of uh, script, and yeah. I really studied that script, saying what was it that made that so special and stood out among all the other scripts that I had to read. And mm -hmm. it, was, it, it was similar to what you said, because of all, I didn't read hundreds and hundreds of them, but there was <laughs> oh, only one so like sad. that that I felt that way about. And, and I thought, well, who am I? And then I think that the really chilling thing was when they gave me a huge stack of screenplays to take up back and throw in the dumpster. But do, do you find that if... Someone can do that um, and have some have some I extra time. That, um, it's valuable. I, I certainly well, found I it valuable, and I also learned a lot about so I'm a big producing. Be, just being in the office, I learned a lot about the, the whole structure of how um, I think they the went about getting their movies it's made. Great to find a great script, but I actually think some of the best value comes from reading scripts that are not great, um, reading scripts that are in early phases of development. Um, it's one of the reasons why it's so valuable if you're in a really great class to be able to see the work of other students um, because oftentimes what happens is if we read that one really great script we spend the rest of our lives trying to write that script and you know there's a passage in Robert McKee that I always talk about um, where Robert McKee in story he does this absolutely jaw-dropping analysis of Chinatown um, and he's showing you how the power dynamic shifts literally with every line between Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway in Chinatown. 
and, and you finish reading that that or that chapter, and you like three thoughts go through your mind. Number one, you're like, "Holy cow, Robert McKee is really smart." And number two, you're like, "Holy cow, Robert Town, the writer of Chinatown, is really smart." And then the third thought is, "Holy cow, I am not smart enough to be a writer, because there's just no way I can do that." Um, and the truth is, neither could Robert Town. Um, and if Robert McKee had been a screenwriter, Robert McKee would know that neither could Robert McKee. That, you know, that usually when you read a great script, you're not reading draft number one. You're reading draft number 200. You're reading a script, you know, that's, that's been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. You're reading a script after Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway have workshopped it. You know, you're, re- re- you're reading a script that has been honed. And so sometimes what happens is when we read only really good scripts, we end up, we end up, I mean, good, good scripts are wonderful and they're fun. Um, and it's great to aspire to greatness, but sometimes we end up not understanding the process by which we actually get there. Um, we end up reverse engineering. Um, that's one of the reasons on my podcast, like we, I look at a lot of great movies, but I also, I love to write about uh, and, and to talk about terrible movies. Um, because if you can learn how to find the beauty, even in the bad stuff, if you can find, learn to find the beauty, even in the stuff that's not working yet, and if you can come to realize, you know, for example, um, you know, the, one of the worst movie premises ever is Lars and the Real Girl, right? A guy, a guy uh, falls in love with a sex doll and everyone accepts her and it changes everybody's life for the better. This is a terrible premise for a beautiful movie. Um, but what's interesting is they made the bad version. So Mannequin is just Lars and the real girl badly executed. Um, and so when you realize that you could start with Mannequin and actually end up with Lars and the real girl, that, that even the worst idea or even the worst execution, if you learn to find the truth, if you learn to keep pushing on it, if you learn to apply the craft... Um, so I think one of the values of, of reading... Uh, as a coverage reader or as an intern, uh, or volunteer for a contest, um, learn what the bad scripts do. Um, first off, you'll learn never to do those things. Um, you'll learn the things that drive you crazy. Um, but also, as you're reading the bad scripts, or when you go to the movies, when you see a bad movie, stop judging it. It's so easy to judge, and we've been trained for it, but it doesn't really help us as writers. Instead, next time you go see a bad movie, ask yourself, if that was my script, imagine it was like just the early draft. How would you turn it into a script that works? What's it really about? What was the writer really trying to say under all that bad execution? Um, uh, A couple years ago at the retreat, um, we did uh, The Room is famously the worst movie ever made. And we, we showed The Room in Costa Rica, and then we, we actually did a, a class about The Room. And it was so much fun because you could really see that this script was actually coming from a really true place. Like, this guy had just been, he's, he's a total narcissist and he's a total chauvinist, but he has no idea. He's just a guy that got his heart broken by a girl. And he has, he has no understanding of why, even though it's just so clear why she wouldn't want to be with him. And, 
if you can see that if that writer had had a really great mentor who could be like, hey, you're actually building on something true here and could have shown him some craft that even that really truly like laughably bad movie could actually turn into something beautiful. You're, you're so welcome. Thank you everyone for being a part of this conference call. If you had a question and didn't get to ask it, or if if you have any questions about screenwriting great, that I can be helpful with, great thought on that. Thank you. That me. was your my email is so true. J A K E at writeyourscreenplay.com, and I'm always happy to help. It may take me a few days to get back to you just because uh, I get so many emails, but I really do try to answer all of them. And remember those five things that we talked about, and remember to hold on to your voice as you write, because that's really the most important thing. So thank you all for being with me and good luck with all of your writing.